Welcome to Man Pepper, a baseball podcast, straight up baseball banter, coming in hot, episode four, with your hosts, Jake and Chris, Mr. Kelps, what's up, man? What's up, Snake? What's up, Jake? How's it going, man? <laughs> Doing well. Hey, you probably heard, we dropped the fantasy off of the uh, the, the title, the intro. You know, Chris, with all the feedback we've been getting, we're, we're going to keep it general. We're going to talk about baseball. We're going to talk about ridiculous baseball stuff uh we're gonna limit the fantasy we'll still talk about our league and whatnot but we think we might be able to get a little better content and some better viewership or listening ship whatever the hell you want to call it yeah we've been you know talking to some of our friends and other people that have been listening the general consensus is they like the college stories we've been telling the general baseball discussion maybe not as much focus just on our fantasy league which i i agree with and i'm good with so like like we said earlier we're here to provide the content for the people, right? So uh, we're giving the listeners what they want. Let's give them what they want. That's it. That's it. Obviously, we got to start off with what beverage of choice you're having tonight. And I have a two for one. So I'm going back a couple of weeks where we both actually had two. First, I'm starting with a, an Asheville beer, High Wire Brewing Company. Shout out to them. They got a little something called Low Pitch Hazy IPA, which they have a high pitch. They have a mid pitch. It's just, just, it's bright, citrusy, and juicy. Can't really beat it. That sounds delicious. Yeah, so I don't know if they were going high pitch, mid pitch, low pitch, going for like a singing theme, but it's appropriate for a baseball podcast, right? Low pitch, so I'm good with that. It is. And then I have a Miller Lite to wash it down. So it's just perfect. So I'm going with a beer from Back East Brewing Company right in my backyard here in Connecticut. It's called Ice Cream Man India Pale Ale does not taste like ice cream and honestly i was a little bit hesitant to try this for the first time about a year ago because i don't generally like maybe like the overly fruity or like super juicy ipas but this one's actually pretty mellow ipa 6.8 percent i really enjoy it it's a great summer beer so i'm having this and then jake instead of the miller light tonight if we if i get to beer two i'm going with the pbr Pabst blue ribbon it's tried and true one of my favorites it's a staple in my house, so that's on deck. It's so fucking trendy, man. Yeah. Like, you know, you go to New York City or go out to Cali. It's like, yo, I get a six-pack. It's like $48. It's so awesome. Listen to, You're like, dude, it's PBR. Listen to some records. <laughs> yeah. It's just, dude, so hot. <laughs> Love it. All right, good. Well, hey, on tap today, we're going to talk quick fantasy, as we talked about. We're going to recap week two. Scores, survivors that we have left. We're going to introduce a new little segment, something that we thought would be fun, weird stat or player highlight, which we've kind of been doing that anyway. We do have our special first guest appearance coming on. We'll save that for when we introduce him in a bit. And we're sticking with Coach's Corner as the title of the segment. You know, fucking alliteration's the best, so we're sticking with it. Love alliteration. Yeah, love alliteration's perfect. I mean, you're a grammar guy, exactly. so, you know, I thought you'd like that. And stories from Hennepin Hall. Another alliteration. So even boom, two in a row. Yeah, I think we got a good episode. Let's get into it. So Survivors, man, it whittled down after week two. Yeah, yeah, we were both on the losing end, man. Um, I said it last week. I didn't feel good about my chances. A lot of my guys on the injured list and uh, going against a good team. D's nuts. I think I lost three to six. I had a shot to tie it up going into Sunday. It just wasn't meant to be. So I am out. Yep, I'm out too. I lost a swing for the Pences, Frank. Uh, similar, I lost six, four, and I did at one point I was tied with him four to four and then he picked up a save and an extra homer or something. So 
We got Kags, Mike, Will, and uh, Eric Mean Machine still left. So there's four. We'll see what happens this week. I haven't looked at if there's any matchups there, but I'm sure we'll whittle it down further. I haven't looked either. I will give myself a pat on the back. I was savvy enough to not make a side bet last week because I didn't love my chances, so I didn't reach out to Mike. I have made a side bet, side bet with uh, Kyle Sumple this week, enormous tits, uh, for $20. So I feel good about it. I'm actually up 9 nothing after day one. Very early, obviously, but a lot can happen. Exactly. How about you? Anything this week? Any action? So I'm playing Will. He just got a solid team. My offense has been absolute doo doo butter. So I'm just gonna. I didn't feel good about putting a bet out there, so Smart. I'm just letting it ride, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. All right. The weird stat segment or player highlight. I saw this and I did get a good laugh. Why don't you? Why don't you take us through, Mr. Brian Reynolds of the Pittsburgh Pirates and what he was able to accomplish. Yeah, I I loved watching this replay when I saw it um, last week. So Brian Reynolds, left-handed batter. I think we talked about him in episode one. Rick kept him, and I said, who the hell is this guy? So Reynolds is up. Who are they playing, Jake? Do you remember? They're the Cubs. Cubs. They're in Wrigley. Yeah, so the Cubs got the shift on against the lefties. So shortstop's playing on the other side of second base. Second baseman's way into right field, and third baseman's over by shortstop. Reynolds hits a little jam job right down the third baseline, barely has enough juice to bounce into the outfield. Um, I read that it was the softest hit triple since the stat cast era when they started keeping track of this. So exit velocity of like 48 miles an hour. Um, <laughs> so the thing rolls into the corner. Reynolds is legging out a double. The left fielder for the Cubs makes a good throw into second right on the bag. But what Reynolds did, extremely smart baseball play, he realized as he was running to second that no one was covering third because the third baseman was playing at shortstop when the pitch was thrown. So literally the whoever was uh, manning second base catches the ball and goes to tag Reynolds, and he just keeps running, <laughs> never stops, hits Gone. second, runs to third, triple. Um, and his manager actually said the only thing that would have been better is if the catcher had tried to cover third base and left home play open, and he just kept going for inside the Parker. But uh, – <laughs> One of the cautionary tales for the infield shift, right? It giveth and taketh away. And you know what? It's just so cerebral, right? Yeah. You know, that's what like Joe Buck would probably fucking say. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, of course it's a smart play. Can't we just say it's smart pr- play? Why can't, why if they get all stupid announcer like and start <laughs> yeah. throwing cerebral around there? <laughs> but it, but it, no, got, it was a good play. It got me thinking though. So the shift's going away next year, right? Um, I think the rule going into effect is you can't play more than two people on either side of the bag it's going to be designed to try to increase offense. And I think it will do that, especially for left-handed hitters where the shift is more prevalent, but it's also going to take away some of these fun plays that we see. So it, it will create more offense, but I think it's it's probably not going to get hitters away from like what they do normally, right? Like Joey Gal is going to pull everything. Getting rid of the shift is not going to result in him going apple more. If anything, it's like, all right, great. Mm. Now I can finally pull the ball more and get more hits. Yeah, good point. Good point. So I get it. It will increase offense, but I don't know. I kind of wish they would just like keep it the same. I'm not I'm not dying on this hill either way. I'm fine with the rule yeah. change, but I kind of like managers being able to play that mind game, shifting, shifting infielders yeah. over. But it'll be interesting to see next year in comparison, like if runs per game go way up or if some of these guys actually hit, you know, 20 points higher on the year. I think the second baseman against lefties is still going to be playing somewhere in the outfield, but up the middle is going to be wide open now where the shortstop normally would slide over to the other side of second base. So there will be a lot more hits, I think. I guess the one thing I do get pissed off on is when I see a guy absolutely hit a piss missile straight up the middle and there's a shortstop or a second baseman 
literally right there for like a one hopper. Like the guy hits it 110 past the pitcher's head. And it's like a routine play to first base. And I'm like, that, that pisses me off. And when I see that as a hitter, I'm like, that guy just absolutely crushed that. It did exactly what you're supposed to do. So granted, if I was st- if I was still playing, I would absolutely hate if someone shifted against me and I hit into a shift <laughs> like that. Like, I would absolutely hate it. I mean, there were no really shifts in college for a few reasons. Number one, like you really don't practice them. And the scouting reports aren't advanced enough to know when you go against another team, right? You only play yeah. them two, three times a year, like whether someone's a dead pull hitter or not. So we never really faced it. We used to we used to shift against Rick in um in our scrimmages in our squad <laughs> scrimmages because we knew him. So like I played shortstop, I would go all the way over on second base, and you played third base and would slide over to short. So we used to mess around with people like that in inner squad. I know Rick hated it. <laughs> he hated it, and then he tried to throw a bunt down the opposite way, and he'd like pop out to the pitcher. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. So yeah, shift rule. Good call on talking about that because that is you know baseball's changing, man. So things are happening even this year with some of the five visits to the mound and all this other crap. But for a player player standpoint, man, so two guys stuck out to us as we ragged on Trout always getting hurt. He was fine after getting hit in the hand, and then he just absolutely torched it last week. He had like a 480-foot home run to dead center field on line drive. I'm like, I don't even know how you do that. That was one of the more impressive home runs I've seen in a long time. Like like you said, pretty much a frozen rope. And uh, I don't know. I forget if they were playing home or away, but wherever whatever the stadium was had like the big – uh, backdrop in center field, no Texas. no stands or anything at Texas, and the ball ricocheted off of that center field backdrop. You couldn't even see where it hit on TV. That's how high it was and on a line. And when I saw the distance, I'm like, man, I can't even fathom hitting a ball that hard or that far. It's it's incredible. And I think his second one that game was like 420 feet. So listen, when he's healthy, he's still, in my opinion, top three, four player in the game. It's just whether he can actually you know maintain the health going forward, but. Hopefully he's back and producing yeah. at that high level. And the interesting thing, I know, so we're recording this on a Tuesday of the following week. So last night, he hit an excuse me triple. I don't know if you saw that. Nope. The exact opposite of Brian Reynolds. He did it down the right field line. It literally, I don't know what the velocity off the bat was, but it had to be something like 50, yeah. 50 or 60 miles an hour. Just dunked it right over the first baseman, and he was just gone. Yep. He made it all the way to third, slid in. It, it was pretty freaking awesome. Yeah, so Trout, Trout's back. Yeah, Trout's back. How about a guy who was like freaking unbelievable and then just sucked for the last two years, and that's Bellinger out of L.A.? Yeah, so Bellinger's got, I think, as of today, five home runs uh, very early on, one of the league leaders. He's still striking out an absurd amount. I think when I checked, he had 20 strikeouts and like 70 at-bats, which is ridiculous. So that's obviously still a flaw in the game. You know, we talked about him, I think, in the first episode as well as a guy – for fantasy purposes, like to potentially target as a buy low candidate. He lost a little of his luster, but we talked about those young guys who, you know, used to be premier players, maybe had a year or two where they were down a bit worth it to take a flyer on. Right. And I think it's paying dividends right now for whoever would have him on their fantasy team. I'm hoping to see him back. He's an exciting player. It's interesting to me though. You know, I think he hit 40 something home runs his rookie year and then went 35 and was hitting, you know, 260, 270. How a guy like that can just drop off and hit like sub 200 last year or the year before the COVID shortened year. I don't really understand it other than, you know, managers are identifying weak spots and and learning how to pitch to them. But that's such a significant drop. And you see that somewhat frequently with some of these players. And it really doesn't make sense to me how there could be such varying levels of performance. The only thing you can attribute to, I think, in, in a lot of these cases, guys are hurt. 
yeah. and they're like trying to play through something. That's I mean, I think maybe more so for pitchers. For a hitter to just like forget how to just barrel up a ball. And I don't even think it was, was it his sophomore year he was that bad or was it his third year? I, I can't no, he remember was, where it was. He was okay sophomore year. He might have been even okay third year. It was the last two years where he was legit yeah. almost like unplayable. So it's just really weird and interesting. Maybe you're right. Maybe there are injuries like we don't know about. Some of these guys are battling through stuff. And that would make sense. I mean, to go from hitting 270 with 45 bombs to hitting a buck 90 with 15 is, is a stark, yeah. stark contrast. Well, I mean, nonetheless, look at us bucking the trend, not talking about the AL East and the Red Sox and instead talking about NL. Well, no, excuse me, not the just the NL, the West Coast teams. Yeah, we did get some hate from our buddies about uh, the Devers talk last week and maybe a little bit too uh, Red Sox centric, but that's who we like. But we are trying to spread the love around to uh, some of these other players and teams. I mean, I'm all right with spreading the love around, but fuck you. I like the Red yeah, Sox. I'm talking exactly. about them. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, speaking of Boston, man, I know this is a baseball pod, but Celtics looking good. Nice sweep of the Nets, so I'm hoping to see them carry that forward as well. Should be a good series next series with oh, the yeah. Bucks. Yeah, I'm so glad they just dumped on Kyrie and the Nets. Yeah. All right, Chris, good discussion. We're on to our special guest segment. I know we're very excited to have Mean Machine himself, Mr. Eric Merzak joining us from league rossi chris anything to say about mr Merchek? we got big four seven big daddy shackleford big bank merzak on the pod first guest ever what is up man what is up my dudes love it how are we this evening just 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 great we're already i'm still on my first beer okay but as you know and hopefully have given us five stars over the past uh you know three or four episodes we like to drink some beers so what are you drinking tonight I'm working on a wrench by Industrial Arts Brewing Company. You may or may not have heard of it. It's delicious. I enjoy it thoroughly. 7.1%. I believe that's the beer I was enjoying last week, if I'm not mistaken. So great selection, Eric. Straight out of the pounder, not the glass. You're straight out of the pounder today? You know, I believe in, you know, being resourceful and you know, protecting the environment. So why dirty a glass? You know what I mean? <laughs> that's right. Save some water. Man, I never do that about you. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> So, so quick background on Eric. Eric, you played, you were uh, primarily left field, right field, sometimes DH for Siena. You started your college career at University of Buffalo, transferred in our, our junior year. Um, and you are the same age as us, but you did have a super senior year, which we may or may not discuss at some point. But I wanted to start the discussion with my first memory of you right after Christmas break is when you came in for the first time, right? You came in like mid, midway through junior year. Is that right? That's right, my friend. So you're, you get dropped off at the townhouse. We lived eight guys in a townhouse. Jake, you were in one of the four or six-person houses at that time. I forget. Eric, you walk in with your parents, and the first thing your dad says, he looks at all of us in the house and goes, what do you guys clean this place with a fucking pitchfork? <laughs> and I just didn't even know how to respond to it. That was my first introduction to you. Do you remember that? Uh, vividly, yeah. That's what Master T does. You know, he brings, uh, he brings the energy. It was an accurate statement, too. <laughs> were your feet like sticking to the ground when you walked in? I'm surprised you didn't say something about mopping because I just remember townhouse, the eight man townhouse had a quarter inch of beer at all times taped <laughs> onto it. <laughs> it was pretty gross. No, I think at that one, I don't think you could even like get to the ground at that point. And there was a time period where like the floors didn't really exist. So it was just kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, <laughs> boxes and cans and whatnot. So. Maybe he was right. Maybe they did. Who knows? We'll never know. What was your initial impression, though, aside from your dad's? Like, you walk into the townhouse 15, I think it was at the time, 
you see us and you see the house. What was going through your mind? Good decision, bad decision, <laughs> indifferent? I was I was ready to rock and roll. My initial feelings were in question later on as kegs decided to put me in a chokehold as I was eating like some kind of burger late night. So, you know, it was a, it was a wild day. It was a lot of different kinds of emotions there, but ultimately I got to meet you guys. So I, I think it was a good decision. Meeting the team for the first time and you have the trainer putting you in a chokehold that night. I mean, what yeah, else could go hot, wrong? It was a hot start. You know, we were drinking and next thing you know, I'm being choked. Hey man. Sounds like a Hopkins move to me. <laughs> <laughs> no, a Hopkins move would be like shirt over the head and then like dump your beer on me. But that's another story. So the, the other thing I wanted to say, Eric, before we get into um, maybe a, a discussion about unwritten rules, <laughs> the other first memory I have of you might've been that same day. So you, you're getting unpacked. I think your parents had left by this point. We're all getting <laughs> changed for the night. And I think four guys lived in the upstairs room and then we had uh, two other two person bedrooms and you were getting changed and change behind like your dresser drawers. Like you open them up to create like a shield. So like we couldn't see you like changing your shirt and pants. And I remember looking at Amber just like, what the fuck is this kid doing? <laughs> what was the thought process there? Yeah. Not my greatest, not my, not my highest point in my life, you know, but you never can trust these kids. You know, you never know what's going to go on out there. Maybe you guys are a bunch of deviants. I had to protect myself. Fair. <laughs> you should have known better because there's even more of a backstory that Eric and I played showcase ball in high school together on one of the most insane tournaments of offensive production of all time <laughs> between our team. And so I knew it when I heard Eric and they're like, oh, Eric with the can't spell his last name, Merchek's coming here. Yeah, he's great. He's going to be here and tell him all these guys about it. And then he walks in and hides behind a dresser to change his shorts. We're like, what the fuck? Eric, I think I think when you closed the dresser, we all just started looking at you and laughing. And you're like, we're like, you don't have to do that, man. We can we can get changed together in the same room. It's all good. In fact, change facing me. That's what we prefer. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know what kind of situation. You know, I had to I figured be conservative and we'll adjust from there. You know, I didn't want to go, you know, front out, back out and just see yeah, what happens. Yeah. Don't want to be that guy either. Exactly. <laughs> Dude. That actually might bring some good content for another episode of Locker Room Nuances. A lot of it we can't talk about, yeah. but there's there's some things. You want to talk about unwritten rules. We could, <laughs> we could spend an hour on that. It's true. <laughs> so that's a good segue, Eric. Let's uh, Maybe let's get into some discussion. So you actually may have been the one that sent this content over to me and Jake. There was a video circulating last week of a pitcher from a Texas junior college who had just given up a home run. And the batter, as he was rounding second base, going to third, the pitcher just dead sprint and spears this kid to the ground, which results in a benches clearing brawl. Now, I, I read some of the comments on the Instagram video that maybe the batter was talking shit to the pitcher or whatever. But it was one of the more, I guess, incredible displays I've seen on a baseball field, especially a college baseball field. What, what was your take when you saw that video? Well, believe it or not, I was one of the few kids suspended at University of Buffalo baseball brawl actually. So I've been there. Yeah. So I, I know what that's about, though. I didn't do any of the spearing or get speared. I was actually on deck as I remember vividly our sec our catcher hit a double into the right center gap. The kid who was on second plowed the, the other team's catcher. And then this big Husky catcher just like barreling in and destroying <laughs> the pitcher. It was amazing. I was about to have like my second or third ever like college at bat. So I was just kind of sitting there like, Hey man, like, can we clean this up? I'm trying to hit here. And uh, yeah, I got suspended. So with that context, I actually thought it was amazing. And I love to see a good baseball fight. Like, I think you don't see enough of them. I think you see like those like guys run out. They're like, oh, I'm going to fight you. And they start to like throw like huge haymakers. But 
nothing like a good form tackle to get us ready for football season. Go dogs. And um, <laughs> yeah, man, I loved it. Dude, form tackle. That was a Goldberg WWE <laughs> plow to the ground, getting ready for a people's elbow afterwards. That was unbelievable. But let's talk. The other thing, the other thing I made me realize, sorry, Chris, the other thing I made me think about was Matt Moberg. Now, what would Moberg do in that situation? My, my gut reaction is I don't think he lets him get to third before that happens. But, you know, if he doesn't spear him, he's automatically hitting the next four or five guys, like right in a row, just yeah, but, hitting a guy walking in a run. But some of this depends on what was said. So if the batter actually was yelling at the pitcher rounding the bases, ex- expletives or whatever, I'm not saying the response is justified. Like you said, Eric, like fights in college are very few and far between for for obvious reasons. I mean, the suspensions are much more severe, right? You can get literally kicked off the team as opposed to in the majors, you're just, you know, suspended a few games. So they don't really happen. But if the batter was actually screaming at the pitcher, I mean, I don't know what the reaction should have been. It's like, I guess it's justified at that point. Like good for that kid, I guess, for sticking up for himself. I don't know. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Eric brings up a good point. What would Moberg have done? He would have done that. Joe Pond. (laughs) Let's talk about what he actually did. Almost every single time he gave up a home run while we played at Siena. Which was often. <laughs> Which was often. So he was, at one point, I think he was our number one starter. He was like our number one weekend guy or maybe a tour, whatever. He was, he was one of our good starters. Every time he gave up a home run, I would look at Kleps at short after the kids rounding third, getting home. Eric, if he was out and left, would look at him. We'd look at Amberry over at second. We just knew. Regardless of the situation, if it was a 1-1 ball game now or 15-1, to Moberg was going to drill the next guy as hard as he can or throw it behind him until he does drill him, no matter what, without fail. And regardless of what the batter did, the batter could have hit the home run, put his head down, ran around the bases, never looked up, never gave anyone a high five, Moberg drilling the next kid every single time. I've seen him hit the next guy on like a hard hit single. <laughs> like you shouldn't have hit that pitch that hard. Like. So he hit the next guy. It's like, okay. And then barks at him. Yeah. And then barks at the batter. And you're like, we're all like, Moberg, dude. Like, people get hits, bro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's probably a step too far, the way he took it. I mean, he was a competitive guy. I get it. But, yeah, if someone hit a home run against Moberg and was barking at him, rounding the bases, or even if there was bad blood from earlier in the game, whether he would have speared him like that or not, I don't know. But maybe he took the ball, maybe he would take the ball and like just literally throw another fastball at him as he, as he was rounding the bases, something like that. I don't think I was ever in a brawl in any situation. I mean, I, I jawed a lot and would just try to back it up with hopefully like throwing a piss missile from third to first and getting a guy out or just hitting a bomb. But Kleps, were you ever in a brawl in any, any sort? One time right after college, when I was in the frontier league in Chicago, um, I was pretty new to the team. So I felt still like the new kid at school, not knowing where to sit at lunch, right? You're trying to figure out like who I could talk to, like who likes me, who doesn't, who, who do I even play catch with before the game? It's like, you're just standing there in the locker room, like hoping someone like taps me in the shoulder. Do you want to play catch? <laughs> you became a toddler at 22 years old. So it was a home game. We were in the third base dugout. I was not starting that day. First inning, top, I think it was top of the first inning. Our pitcher gives up a hit. The kid gets into a rundown between second and third base on the other team. So our pitcher runs over to third to cover the third base bag. Shortstop throws the ball to the pitcher. His name was Ross Stout. Ross catches it, goes to tag the runner, and the runner spears him like just like the Texas Juco pitcher speared the other kid, like head down, like running over a catcher. 
So Ross gets the kid in like a headlock as he spears him and just starts wailing on his helmet, like as hard as he could, like punches flying. And I'm just sitting there in the dugout and looking around like, oh, shit, I got to I got to run out on the field right now and like fight these other teams. <laughs> so the benches, the benches clear. I was just kind of like moving people like I didn't throw any punches or anything like that. Our center fielder came flying in, started throwing some punches. The third baseman was getting into it, too. But when the dust cleared, what I was so amazed by was, as I said, our pitcher was at least four or five punches on this kid's head. And, and granted, our pitcher did nothing wrong to start, right? He's the one that got tackled. But the umpires throw out our center fielder, the third baseman, the kid on the other team that speared the pitcher and leaves the pitcher in the game. Ross never got ejected. <laughs> he pitched eight innings <laughs> after being in a brawl. It was, it was remarkable. That doesn't even make any sense. That's unbelievable. Were the punches with the throwing hand? Because that's even more with impressive. With the throwing hand on a helmet, I think at least the first two. But he stays in the game, throws eight innings, and then we won that game on a walk-off. And that was one of the best celebrations I've been a part of, even though it was just a regular season game because of all the bad blood. So that was the only brawl I've ever even seen in person, never mind being a part of. Eric, I wanted to ask you, though. You said you got ejected from yours. What was your involvement in terms of being ejected? Like, what did you do? I knew a bunch of kids on the other team. because so it was like UB versus Kenesha. So it's all like Buffalo area kids, you know? So like I went over and stood next to a kid I played high school baseball against and was just kind of like talking We kind of like messed around a little. Like I pushed him, he pushed me like to act like we were doing something. And then my coach called me out. It was like, you're out of here, man. Like they had to like, I think this happened later on in like at Siena when someone had to get ejected. I think Seabeck, I think Rossi told Seabeck that he got ejected. He wasn't even involved in yes. something. But Coach was like, like I was expendable, so I was gone. I remember that was that was awesome. Jake, do you remember that about Seabeck? Vaguely, jog my memory, please. Someone was jawing at the umpire from the bench, like about balls and strikes. <laughs> I forget who Matt Moberg. <laughs> so Moberg. Yes, it was definitely Moberg. The umpire looks and you know throws the ejection sign at the bench. I don't even think the ump knew who it was coming from, and Rossi just told Seabeck to get out. <laughs> like he wasn't going to pitch that day. <laughs> He probably just got done throwing 192 pitches in a game. Yeah. His arm just dragging on the ground as he walks out of the dugout after throwing 190 pitches. I remember that. Oh, my God. So many things about Canisius, by the way, that I hate as well. Can you name a thing you like about Canisius? Because I can name a lot of things I hate. I mean, it's beige, for one. It's yeah, a beige, si beige city town. They played on a turf field, just for the viewers to know. AstroTurf. AstroTurf. With a plastic fence that they would move in and out depending on if they were playing a team like us who were just hitting bombs. They'd make it 700 feet so you couldn't hit any more home runs the next day. Oh, they also had to build the pitcher's mound each game, Jake. Don't forget that because it, it doubled yes. as like a lacrosse soccer field. So we'd get to the field and there were people with shovels shoveling dirt onto the pitcher's mound and like shaping it up. <laughs> Let's let's remind everybody that we played Division One baseball. By the way, this is D yes. D one in the Northeast. That's unbelievable. Other unwritten rules. So we obviously talked about just pegging people or spearing people. I mean, there's a bunch of different ones. I know, like just kind of seeing some things that have happened so far this year. One that I laughed at: not running across the pitcher's mound <laughs> as an offensive player. Yeah, A Rod did, and that. then reminding us, A Rod did it. Against it was uh, like Dallas Braden, I think, was the pitcher on the other team and started yelling at A-Rod and A-Rod was acting like he didn't know what the hell was going on. I think that's such a dumb rule. However, A-Rod, I think, is kind of a loser. So I'm kind of glad that he got called out for it. But that is a prime example of how stupid some of these unwritten rules are, right? Like, I know the pitcher owns the mound, whatever. What the hell does it matter if a batter, 
you know, accidentally touches the dirt or runs back across it on a foul ball. I think it's stupid. That wasn't even one that I thought of for like unwritten rules. I was thinking things like don't bunt or try to bunt for a hit like in a perfect game, something like that. But running across the pitcher's mound is such a funny thing that like only A-Rod I feel like would do or A-Rod types, you know, on top of like that little swipe he did on who was the Red Sox pitcher at that time. Bronson Arroyo. Yeah, in the playoffs. We- Bronson Arroyo, and he was just, eh, with the Yankees, yeah. just got rid of it. <laughs> and then started clapping. And then he tried to pretend. Started clapping yeah. when he got to second base. Like, I did a great thing. <laughs> like, no, no, that, that was an interference. Well, okay, unri- I don't know if it's an unwritten rule, but it's kind of one where, like, players trying to actually get catcher's interference. Like, if you're getting dominated by a pitcher, you know who I think does it all the time in the pros? Fucking Paul Goldschmidt. He, he has like five catcher's interference a year where he just drags his bat on like a like an 0-2 pitch where he's absolutely getting owned. And he's a great hitter. And just get catcher's interference. And everyone's like, dude, bro, what the hell? You just did it again. Yeah, that's one I think is a valid rule. That's bullshit to try to do that as a hitter. To try Oh, yeah. Oh, that's total bullshit. To try to swing and nip the catcher's gloves so you get to go to first base. That's, I mean, you deserve to get called out for that. Or, or hit, quite honestly. That's like Little League stuff, right? Like some of that is just like, come on. You're a major league baseball player. Let's figure this out. So the other one I thought was ridiculous, and I only learned about this in researching this topic. Apparently, there's an unwritten rule that if a pitcher gives up back-to-back home runs, the, the next hitter up, so the third guy, shouldn't swing at the first pitch. And the rationale behind it is that the pitcher is struggling, so you want to give him a chance to settle back into his groove. I've literally this never heard This is a competitive that. sport. We're trying to win. You're trying to hit home runs. To the extent that actually is even a rule, and I've never seen someone like get mad at the third batter swinging at the first pitch, I think that that's outrageous. The article I read about it actually used the Red Sox as an example. Sorry to bring up the Red Sox again, but when they went back to back to back to back against the Yankees years ago, do you remember that, Jake? Against that rookie. They pointed out, though, that the third and fourth batters, it might have been Veritek and Lowell, didn't swing at the first pitch of their at-bats out of you know courtesy or respect for this stupid rule. But uh, again, to the extent that exists... Swing away, man. You don't owe anything to the pitcher. That guy's struggling. You should pull him. Yeah, that's absurd to me. Like, who wrote that? A pitcher? Like, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. No one wrote it, Eric. It's unreal. I mean, (laughs) oh, right. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, unbelievable. Like, I'm going up there. The first two guys in front of me went yard. I'm, it's a big daddy hack first pitch, regardless. Like, we're trying to, we're going back to back to back, like, one way or another. That's, that's insane to me. Like, I, I hate how some of this, like, professional sports have gotten so soft at sometimes. Yeah. You know, people get upset about, like, pimping home runs. Good. Let them pimp. People are all, all, all up in arms about, like, steroids. I say more <laughs> steroids. I want better. I want pitchers throwing 170 miles an hour. I want 3,000-foot home runs. Like, let's get crazy here. Like, this is a sport. That's what I want. I don't disagree. Uh, I actually I, I kind of would advocate for at the pro level. Like once you get there, you can roid out and just absolutely be a monster. But I want to go back to one thing you just talked about because it is a new evolution. Let the players play. That was a slogan last year with all the new up-and-comer like Acunas and Tatis. How do you feel about the weird pimping a home run? They they pimp at like second. They do like a little little trot thing at third now. They do all this weird like like they're dancing. And it's so extravagant. Like Tatis, I thought he would, like hurt himself at one point, and he was just doing his like electric slide at third, I'm, and then he kept going. I was like, know what was happening. I'm all for it, and I'm cool with it. I mean, pitchers have been striking people out and screaming at the dugout and screaming at the batters for as long as baseball has been played. So you know they're allowed to essentially show up hitters when they want to. 
why can't a hitter hit a bomb and, you know, have a little, uh, little signature home run shot, little something different home to first, first to second. That's great. I wish I had the balls to do that when I played. That would have been amazing. <laughs> I I do I do agree with you. I just don't like I don't like when like a kid hits a single and he's on first base and he's doing all sorts of weird shit over there. I'm like, you hit a little CNI single. Like just fucking you should be happy you even got a got a hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like top thirty. It's like a single to like the opposite field off the end of the bat and he's like dancing. You're like, come on, dude. Like that's not cool. But that's part of the reason why like I have trouble now watching college baseball. Um, as opposed to professional baseball, because it's a shorter season. And like when it's on TV, right, it's usually the regionals or the College World Series. Everything's amplified because it's a shorter season. And these guys have so much energy and emotion with every single play and pitch, way more than you see in the pros. And sometimes I sit here as just, you know, a consumer of this, and I'm like, that's a little overboard. But then I remember back when we played, and I mean, we were going nuts too, and like when we had like a postseason run and things like that. So, bottom line, I'm for the emotion, even if it annoys some viewers, even if it annoys the other team. Everybody's doing it. Pitchers, for the most part, can be very soft about this stuff, in my opinion, and they need to man up a little bit and understand that they're doing the same thing on the flip side. So just play the game. Best team's going to win. Stop getting mad at people for celebrating their success is kind of where I'm at. I will say to that point, Chris, there's nothing better for me than when a pitcher or a hitter like celebrates, you know, what's his name, Trevor Bauer, does that like sheathing his sword or whatever that stupid thing he does like to the side yeah. and then he gives up a bomb like oh, later yeah. on there's nothing better like that to me is just the best like let that happen all yeah. the time yeah i remember i remember uh mac tournament senior year and there was a guy on rider who was the closer closer of the year pitcher of the year jamie hayes and he was good he threw like low 90s and he had a sick change up and he came in and struck out i think moises earlier in the game with like the bases loaded and i think i let off an inning or two later dude i remember this vividly jake <laughs> me too vividly <laughs> stay back on the change up and he threw me a fastball and i was staying back and i thought i hit a home run to like tie the game Hi. right center yeah yeah and i get to second base and i am screaming <laughs> Yeah, just clapping and screaming. You don't ever say anything about my teammates. I remember just, that just burned in my brain. I'll never forget it. That was amazing. Oh, my God. And then I think it proceeded to score. I think I got a pass ball, and I think Rick hit me in from third, and we tied the game up and ultimately won that game just to lose the championship, but whatever. Yeah, the one more, the one other rule, unwritten rule I'll mention, and again, for the most part, I think these rules about showing people up and stuff should go out the window. Some of the ones that are actually rooted in logic should remain. I got into almost a tiff again in the Frontier League very early on when I was there. I was on second base taking a lead and the pitcher was looking me back. Every time the pitcher looked me back, I would just take my left hand and kind of lean back towards second base to show him that like I was ready to get back and not trying to steal. Right. It's, it's kind of something I did when I was getting looked back at second. Even if I was looking to steal, I'm just trying to play a little mind game with the pitcher so he did that for two pitches, looked at me. After the second one, he stepped off the mound and started walking at me. And the shortstop and second baseman started yelling at me. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, why am I getting screamed at by the other team? They thought I was tipping signs or location of pitches by putting my hand to the left. Like, they thought I was signaling the batter that it was going to be an outside pitch. So I was just standing there, again, getting screamed at by three guys on the other team. No one from my team even looked to exit the dugout because I was, like, brand new. And they were just like, this kid's an idiot if he is tipping signs. And I came back into the dugout after the, the play or the inning was over. And my manager looked at me. And he's like, Chris, 
what the hell are you doing out there? And I was like, I was just taking a lead coach trying to get back to second. And he's like, don't ever fucking do that again. And just walked away. <laughs> <laughs> to the extent there's an unwritten rule about not tipping signs, I'm in favor of that one. And you should get drilled if you are tipping them. But I was not. And I still almost got drilled. So be careful when you're out there. <laughs> I love I love the segue into a coach's corner. I might be going a little out of order, but that's a really good segue where you came in. You're like, coach, I didn't know what was going on. I don't know if anyone finally told you, but like, you're like, I really wasn't doing anything. Coach's corner for this week. We're going back to the Ross dog at Siena. Chris, you came up with this one. I want you to start with what he did to Mr. Gabe first, because it's exactly along the same lines. Yeah, so what was this, our sophomore year, right, if Gabe was on the team, Jake? So, Eric, you weren't there for this, I don't think. I, I forget. Let me know if I'm incorrect. But Sophomore year, sophomore yeah, year. So yeah, so we're playing Tennessee, I think. They were ranked, like, fifth in the country. Gabe Perez, who is one of our better players, mysteriously is not in the starting lineup for that game. And he wasn't hurt. You know, we're early in the season. We're playing one of the best teams in the country. No one really knows what's going on. I think second game, we come back, and he's still not in the lineup. And everybody on the team is just like, why isn't Gabe playing? And I think Gabe had to take it upon himself to go to one of the assistant coaches and ask the question, like, hey, why am I not in? Apparently, he was told that he wasn't wearing our standard issue academia turfs for warmups. Like, he was wearing something else. He was this California Juco kid. He liked the flash. He probably had, you know, his, his own Nikes or something like that. But Rossi freaking benched one of our best players without telling him the reason because he wasn't wearing the correct turfs. And I think he sat on the bench for a few more games after that for not wearing the proper turf shoes. Gabe's sitting there going, what the hell's going on, guys? Like, <laughs> we ended up beating Tennessee, number five in the country, and it was an unbelievable game, which he wasn't a part of. We could have used him. Yeah. But uh, like, he's sitting on the bench like, guys, what the hell is going on? But that was also the same series. I think University of Tennessee gave us a box of Dixie cups for our water jug, for our Gatorade jug. Little, little tiny Dixie cups. <laughs> little tiny Dixie cups. <laughs> I mean, we played two really close games against one of the best teams at the country at the time. Rossi was going around seeing who was throwing their Dixie cup away and not reuse the Dixie cup that they were given at the beginning of the game. I was there for that. So that was the next year because okay. I was there for that. So... Instead of coaching the game, this is as the game is going on. He had a little clipboard and he was taking down notes the whole game. We're like, what is he, what is he noting? You know, like he's basically just looking at us in the dugout and then would be scribbling on his notepad. Kind of like Ryan from the office, right? Where he's like <laughs> checking down people who's off his list. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think we found out the next day, like he got mad at, I don't know, seven or eight of us because we were drinking water in 90 degree heat and throwing out our little two ounce Dixie cups rather than putting it in a place where it's going to accumulate dirt and soil and everything else. that's in a baseball dugout to reuse. So that's where his focus was that day. Not on playing one of the best teams in the country, but on to Eric's earlier point, protecting the environment. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The only thing I remember about that series, Jake, was you almost dying on a line drive that hit the fence from, um, what was his name? He's a catcher in the MLB now. Um, not Aaron Sebia, Jan Gomes. Yeah, that was insane. The, all the plays at third base, he kept hitting. He kept hitting missiles at me, and I was just protecting myself. And they kept finding a glove. <laughs> protecting <know> myself. <laughs> I really was. Hey, maybe that's uh, maybe Man Pepper came in handy there. <laughs> Dude, maybe it did. And Naki was there for that. Yeah. So I mean, 
Yeah. Dude, I remember, and that actually reminds me, after that series, because I think Gomes hit literally two or three absolute rockets that I just jumped in front of. Somehow it found the glove, like I said. After the game, he's like, yo, man, that was some great defense at third. And I was like, little do you know, my feeling percentage is like 68. <laughs> so, <laughs> thanks, dude. <laughs> 68. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, or 680. Same thing. Took a zero off. It's like it's, it's basically a coin flip at this point if the ball's hit to me. So the chance that I made all those. <laughs> yeah, I think it was errorless the whole series. Against the best team in the nation. My, st- my draft stock went way up and then plummeted the next week when I went to Canisius and made 17 errors. Yeah. <laughs> So, Jake, I know we're a little out of order, but do you want to talk a little bit about our uh, winter and early spring training program, getting ready to actually play outside when we're we're practicing in the middle of the Albany winter? Yeah, and we were playing in a back, I don't know, what do you call it, hallway area <laughs> underneath? Hallway. A, uh, <laughs> underneath the basketball arena, practice arena, with half-lit batting cages. Here we are at a D1 program, all of us on some sort of scholarship at a pretty expensive liberal arts school, and we we don't have the proper lighting, and we were supposed to, A, build confidence, B, get ready for the season to go down and play the number five team in the country, Florida State with Buster Pose, all these teams, and we were playing in almost pitch black, going against our pitchers, who had no idea where the ball were going half the time. That was probably the scariest injury-prone risk thing of all time yeah who was the scariest person that you'd face in that fucking tunnel my scariest pitcher was kenny grant for sure in my career so he was like six seven arms and legs for days threw really hard with a lot of movement but definitely didn't know where the ball was going to earlier point he basically matched his strikeouts with walks for a season total so you know we're standing in this cage there's netting all around us. The netting's not that much further from like where we're swinging. Like you almost feel confined in your swing in there, right? Like you're going to hit the net on your follow through. You know, I just knew it was inevitable. I'm going to get drilled like in one of these at bats. It's just going to happen. It's and, and everyone just thinks it's okay. Like the coaches think it's fine. Kenny thought it was funny. And you're just in there. I was really just trying to avoid getting hit. Like if I made contact, it's like great. But like you don't even know if you hit the ball hard because you're in this freaking cage that's only 70 feet long and there's a 60 foot mound. It was terrifying. It did nothing to get me ready for the season whatsoever. And then, you know, we'd freaking bust it down to Florida on a 24-hour bus trip, get off the bus, change in the parking lot, and face our first live pitching in a game against <laughs> Bethune Cookman. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, what about you? Ironically, they're both lefties. Tom Hopkins, because he was, again, like all elbows and knees, and like he just didn't know what was going on. And then Moberg, because <laughs> you could piss Moberg off the day before, and just like in a passing comment, and the next day you were wearing one in the ribs, and it was just like, all right, well, this is a great way to start my day. Yeah. But yeah, that was that was insane. What else? What I what else I remember too was everything was a strike. You'd be like, that ball was six inches yeah. outside. Nope, that was a strike. Good pitch. You're out. Yeah. You got to go like run or something like that. You're like, <laughs> okay, awesome. Yeah. Great man. And this was really great for me. And then. You know, that guy would be in the like throwing off the mountain there, would go down south and just get absolutely like his tits ripped. And you'd be like, all right, well, maybe that wasn't a strike. Yeah. I, I got vivid memories. Like, you know, we're practicing every day from when we come back from winter break till mid late February, right? Vivid memories of like show up to practice in that gym 
in the basketball gym and you make your way to the tunnel or the hallway, as I called it, and you look on the clipboard and you just looked at your group and you looked at the pitcher who was going to be pitching in your group of maybe, say, five or six hitters. And whenever I saw Andy Wells, yeah, who was like an Adonis of a specimen. I mean, like 6'4", just like, I don't think he ever worked out, but he, had, he was just like strong and big and threw like 92, 92, 93 miles an hour without even trying. And he had a sick curveball, like super sick curveball. He just had no idea where anything was going ever. I'd get back there. I was just hoping to just go down on three straight pitches. <laughs> Over my head, a foot outside, wear one off the ribs, strike three. And you're like, I just got hit. <laughs> It's it's not even worth trying to hit in that drill. And like Andy had that like three quarters arm slot sidearm delivery too. So it's impossible to pick the ball up with that lighting and in the cage. And it really wasn't a drill for the hitters, even if they thought it was. It was, I think, mainly to get the pitchers ready. But as you all said earlier, the strike zone was so liberal that they thought these guys thought they were dealing throwing like four or five inches outside, get down south, and things wouldn't go according to plan. Yeah, they talk about shadows in some of these baseball fields, like on these day games that turn in the evening. I mean, you wouldn't see the ball, and it'd hit you in the face. That was the type of shadows we were <laughs> yeah. dealing with. But, you know, not only not only is there definitely a talent discrepancy between, like, Northeast schools and Southern schools, even though, like, you know, there, there are some really good Northeast schools and players, right, that could play at Siena and also potentially play at Tennessee, right, if you were from down there or whatever. Like, So there is a talent gap. But the biggest gap is is the facilities and the way – you're getting ready to play. Those schools are able to play outside 12 months a year, essentially face live pitching. And like I said earlier, it's like off the bus first time facing like real live pitching (laughs) was in the game. So it would always take us a few weeks to kind of get like our legs underneath us and feeling decent in the batter's box. And by that time, you know, we were one in 16 coming back up north. (laughs) (laughs) Where you get to one of those Southern schools and you're like, Oh, these guys have a batter's eye in center field. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, like, I can as, actually see the ball, and then the guy rips off a 90-mile-an-hour slider, and you're like, oh, it didn't matter anyway. What was our batter's eye? Thea Bowman or something like yeah. that? Yeah, Plasman Hall, yeah. I think, was our batter's eye. <laughs> this brings us to Tales of Hennepin Hall. And we have, we have a, another twofer about a guy that I roomed with for a year. But I think when he came in, we're all like 20 years old. Michael Hurtado. He might have been 26 when he came in as a junior, as a junior college transfer. He was a Cuban who lived in Sweden, who went to a JUCO in Cali, who ended up at Siena College. Well traveled. Figure that one out. Very well traveled. (laughs) Great guy. He was a nice guy. I loved loved Ricardo. He was like a sidearm submariner, and like sometimes he was really good, and other times just not. But we got two stories. All right, first one with the bus. So, yeah, we're on a, like Jake said, 20-hour bus ride down to Florida. So we've got our, you know, standard DATCO bus with our normal driver. I forget his name, but we love that guy. You know, we're all sitting in the bus. Quick aside there, coming in as freshman, Jake, we'd be on those overnight bus trips. Again, going straight to a field to play our game. Freshman and sophomore year, you had to double up on those seats, man, right? You were sitting two people to a row and trying to sleep just sitting straight up like this on a DATCO bus. (laughs) So like, I remember being so excited to get to junior year when I was like, I get my own row and I could actually sort of lay down, even though my legs were crisscrossed with the person across from me trying to sleep. So again, another uh, little tidbit about how we traveled and got ready for games, but you know, nature called for Hurtado. He had to use the, uh, 
the bus bathroom, which I like to avoid as much as possible. And he was in there for a really long time. Right. And we were kind of like, it's where's Hurtado? Is he good? And someone knocked on the door, I forget who it was and asked like, Hurtado, you good? And we just hear him, you know, in his like Cuban accent. I have the handle. I have the handle. And we're like, <laughs> Mike Hurtado, what do you mean? And he, he's explaining that he tried to get out of the bathroom and the handle of the bus bathroom broke off. And he was just holding the handle inside and just stuck inside a Datco bus bathroom while we're going down a highway at like 65 miles an hour. I don't even know how he got I out. I have the handle. <laughs> just scream. I think he started having a panic attack. I would have. Because he was like, I have the handle. He may have just, you know, number two, which that was kind of like a rule. Like, you're not allowed to do that in this bus. Yeah. And he was sitting in his own filth at that time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how he ever got out. Did we, did we jimmy it from the outside or did he yeah. get it back in I don't in know, there? Eric. Do you remember that? How he got out? I think we, like, ripped the door out, like, off or something like that. Like, we just... It might have been, like, Rick or Jake and just, like, muscled it off, I think, is what <laughs> happened. And then the bathroom door was just broken. I do remember being back there, whether I was in the last row or the one right next to it. I remember just hearing him screaming over and over. I had to I have the handle. And, like, pow- <laughs> and pounding on the door back to us. Like, what are we going to do? It opens towards us, so you kick it out, dude. Yeah. So the other Hurtado story, one of the most unbelievable and totally uncalled for uh, of all time stories. So it was... You know, a Thursday night or so. Um, Sienna Fest, Having man. some beer. Sienna. Oh, oh, yeah. It was a Sienna Fest? Yeah, it was Sienna Fest. Jesus. That's why we were all hanging outside. So maybe give a quick explanation as to what Sienna Fest was and how we handled it as uh, pl- playing baseball players. So Sienna Fest was something where all the townhouses in what we called the horseshoe, what was there, 48 of them or 50 of them, mm-hmm. eight-man townhouses, would essentially just all day drink. That was pretty much a long short of it. You do some sort of drinking activities. Like we did the wiffle ball game where you spin around. You try to go chug a beer afterwards. But all the houses would sign up for a themed drink and then buy a bunch of that alcohol. And then you kind of just make your way around the... Security would kind of turn the blind eye to it too, right? It was pretty strict campus for the most part. Uh, You had to kind of like be pretty careful if you're throwing a party and stuff. But Sienna Fest was one of the rare situations where you can kind of get away with it. I think you're talking about earlier though, Jake, about the theme drink. I think that was around the world, which is the other thing we used to do. Sienna Fest was, Oh yeah, I am confused. Sienna Fest was more in the spring. Like, you know, first, first kind of mini heat wave hit Sienna or Northeast school. Everyone's feeling good. Just kind of outdoor drinking. I don't even think there was a theme about it. It was just like an all day and night party. Good point. Good point. Hurtado didn't really drink too much. He was pretty much, He'd have a beer or two, but he would just get like super, you know, he would just like black out after like <laughs> a shot of vodka or something. So he just didn't drink too much. He just kind of hung out and had a good time with folks and just whatever. We're outside of your guys' townhouse. Security at this point in time, this time of the night, at this point it might have been like 11. They're starting to be like, hey guys, you guys have been out here all day. Like start wrapping things up. Like just don't be obnoxious. Which, you know, we're like, all right, that's no big deal. Well, Hurtado's outside with us. And he looks at security and he's like, why? <laughs> and we're like, you know, well, here we go. He's, just, he's the only, he's the only sober one there. And he's questioning security and security's like, you know what? Well, I need to see your ID. <laughs> he has no shoes on. He has no socks on. He has no sandals on. He's barefoot. I don't know why he's barefoot, but he goes, oh, you need to see my ID. And he goes, Catch me if you can, and just bolts and just just starts sprinting, and security starts sprinting after him. 
I didn't even do anything wrong. It's like, like, yeah, what, so like why, wrong. No. why is security Nothing. chasing him? <laughs> but I, I have no, no, no idea. We all kind of like jog after. At first, we're like just in disbelief of what's just happening. And we get no more than what, 100 yards down and around the corner. And there was like, you know, a gravel ish type path that he somehow ripped his feet to absolute shreds and was basically rolling on the ground, writhing in pain as security's like, oh, we're going to, you know, do something. We're going to write you up. His feet are bleeding and we have to take him to the fucking ER because he has to wire brush his feet (laughs) to get all of the rocks and glass shards and sand out of his, he ripped his feet to absolute shreds. What you neglected to mention is we had a game the next day. (laughs) (laughs) So like sometimes the NFS would fall when we were home and other times we were away, basically every other year is how it worked out. So anytime we were home, you know, we would just basically put like lawn chairs out and like watch everybody else, you know, be rambunctious and having a good time. Maybe we'd have like a beer, but we wouldn't, we would just kind of chill and hang out. And I forget who had to explain that to Rossi or the coaching staff. I don't think he was going to pitch anyway because it was a weekend game. You did, Jake? <laughs> I had to call Rossi at 3.30 in the morning at the ER and let him know that, hey, Rossi, I know you're just waking up and going into the office. 3.30. But uh, Hurtado um, has bandages around his feet and can't walk. So he's, he's not going to be, be available. <laughs> He's just like, what he say? What the hell happened? He's like, okay, 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 bye. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much, he's just like, good. He sucked anyway. I don't want him on the team. <laughs> Put him on the sixty-day IL. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, so there's there's your Hurtado stories. Oh man, I love Hurtado. I hope he's doing well. But those are those are two staple stories, man, from Sienna Lore for sure. You gotta love it. Well, listen, man. First guest, Mister Mister Me Machine. What do you think? This is enjoyable. I enjoyed every second of it. You guys are doing great. Keep it up. I need more episodes. Anything you want to plug, Eric? <laughs> no, not right now. I don't think. Maybe next time. Let me ask you a real quick question, though. You were a pretty pretty average outfielder. Pretty good. Good arm. Average. Good arm. Average at best, we'll say. You could throw the ball to second base, but did you know how you did it? No, I didn't. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know how to write. I can write. I don't know how to. If, if someone asked you to explain how you write your name, would you be able to tell them or would you essentially be at a loss for words? I'd be at a loss for words. I forget who said it. It might have been Einstein that said something along the lines of, if you have a thought, you should be able to explain it to a six-year-old who then should be able to explain it to another six-year-old. So technically, I can't explain how I throw, so I can never throw. Those are wise words, man. I, I don't think I've heard that quote, but I love it. Wow. My mind's blown, guys. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, thanks for coming in. Thanks for enjoying episode four with us, Man Pepper Podcast. Chris, Eric, till next time. Let's go. Thanks, guys.